Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. I'll be reading from Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. <clears throat> now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the <clears throat> excuse me, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did I say a prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and... Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that is going into him, that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Alex didn't even need to preach this week because he's in Hawaii, and who, who wouldn't want to be here today? Um, Jeremiah and I left the house this morning, and we had snow flurries on the windshield, and I was like, yeah, November is here, November is here. Um, luckily, it warmed up as we got a little bit closer to Seattle, so that's great. Um, but we like the cold, and we like the wet, and that's why we're here, um, and it's good, yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> right. No, it's good, good to be with you guys, so glad you guys could be here. Um, Lisa, thank you for reading the text this morning. Um, yeah, jumping into Mark 7. 
the text, I mean, you go a lot of different ways on this. And, and I thought about it and I rewrote, I actually rewrote this sermon and, and re-outlined it several times because I wasn't sure how I wanted to quite attack it. And um, as a preacher, your, your goal more than anything else is to come to a conviction of what you think the text is trying to say. What was the author really getting at? And if you can figure that out, that is all you want to drive home. You're not trying to bring your own thoughts to the text. You are very much trying to um, come to a conviction of what you think Mark was trying to say, this Mark was trying to say, um, and drive, yeah, and, and, and make sure you're driving there. And so, um, but I think this is where he's going with it. Um, I think he's talking all about how we approach God. What do you think about when you're approaching God? Or if you, if you think about that, if you close your eyes, um, Meg did a reflection a couple of weeks ago where she asked us to close our eyes and imagine a peaceful place and, and imagine God being present there with us. You know, what's his, what are his facial expressions? What, are, what is he doing? Is he holding your hand? Is he offering to hug you? Is he, what is it? What do you feel when you imagine that? Or when you think about walking into the throne room of God and what that will feel like, how are you to approach God? What business do you have being there? What business do you have being there? I think it's kind of a, a bit of a tension, right? Because, I mean, if you think of any member of royalty, even human royalty, you're supposed to bow or curtsy or whatever. The, I mean, this is America, so we don't really know. But you're supposed to do something. You're supposed to show some degree of reverence for the fact that you're in the presence of royalty or his or her majesty. So there's that side of it. But then, and God clearly cares about how he's approached. But then you also see him, when, when Jesus talks to us about how to approach him, he often uses the language of coming to me like a child. And children, I've got two of them, they're anything but reverent. And they're highly unpredictable. They're highly unpredictable. They don't seem like the ones you want in the presence of royalty. But he wants them there. Much of the Torah, um, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, lays out our interaction with God, right? And in the Torah, you end up with this binary system of whether you are clean or unclean. And really that doesn't matter for your general social interactions. Whether you're clean or unclean matters when you approach God. It matters when you come to the temple and you're gonna be in his presence. Because if you're not clean, it could cost you your life. It's that level of importance. And there's lots of things that can make you unclean. Certain types of clothing could make you unclean. Interaction with certain animals could make you unclean. Touching a dead body would make you unclean. Certain things you ate, pork, there were certain fishes that were on the list, there were certain birds that were on the list. All those things could make you unclean and unable to enter the presence of God. And, and it seems kind of random, like why birds, man? Like why pork? Of all things to exclude, why, why would you have this system? This seems awfully arbitrary. But I think what God was trying to get at with that is it's, it's very hard to get your head around 
holiness or the lack of holiness. And so he needed some physical, um, some means by which you would measure that and that you would understand that I cannot just willy-nilly approach God. That I do have to give some thought as to how I've prepared myself or how I've come before him. The error of the Pharisees, the primary error of the Pharisees and their teaching is that they equated being ceremonially clean with being good with God. They took being ceremonially clean, that's a hard word to say, and equated it with being good with God in a place of holiness. They went too far with that. This morning, I want to walk through Mark 7, the first part of it, the first 23 verses. And I want to walk through it under three headings. One is how we naturally approach God. The second is the problem with that approach. And the third is the solution to all of that. It's how God approaches us. So first heading, first five verses, how we naturally approach God. It says this in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. We've got a parenthetical here. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come to the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but eat with defiled hands? Um, The Pharisees are, uh, they don't show up super often, at this point. They spent a lot of time in Mark 2 and a little bit in Mark 3. And look at the interactions that, we've, that Jesus has had with them so far. In, in Mark 2, 16, the Pharisees show up and they call Jesus out for dining with sinners. They don't like that. They don't like who he's associating with. Um, then two verses later, they're asking, hey, why don't your disciples fast? All the other rabbis, their disciples fast. All of our people, they do this. Why, 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 why don't you do that? Then in Mark 2.24, they challenge him for doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Again, you, for a Jewish teacher, you don't really seem to align with how we roll. You seem quite different than us. And then in Mark 3, they're plotting to kill Jesus. So they take that and go way far with that. But so far, they, they've spent a lot of time simply trying to call Jesus out. And, and I do believe that they're highly concerned for a potentially false teacher showing up in their midst. That's why the Pharisees are showing up. That's why the scribes are showing up. They're not in the city. They're out in the burbs. Well, the first century burbs. It's not downtown, right? They're going out to the countryside where Jesus is teaching. And they're approaching him because they're concerned about whether or not this is a false teacher that has somehow taken over this town. And they're showing up and they're trying to call them out. It's like, see, you don't look like all the other teachers. And that's a problem for us. You're not following the tradition of the elders. And that's a problem for us. Because that's how we justify ourselves, as we're going to find out. They're looking to expose him. Namely for his disregard of the law. 
and they think they've got them here. They think they've got them here. And not because they're the health department and they've not washed their hands. But there's like, this is a perfect example of you not following the tradition of the elders. It's a problem for them. The Pharisees were well-respected leaders in, in their community. They're, they're known as teachers of the law. They're the ones who have this dialed, in theory, better than anyone else. And so people would go to them for interpretation and for understanding, what do we do with this? What do we, how, how do we, how do we um, adhere to these different things? Again, in their minds, they're good with God. They live in such a way, I mean, if you look at, um, I didn't write it down here, but like the interaction with the religious lawyer around the Good Samaritan was the first thing he thinks he's done. Well, I've, I've obeyed all of these. I've obeyed all the commandments. How do they know that they can say something like that? Well, they, they know it because they've built a system. They, they've built a system where there's, there's rules. So the Torah has 613 laws. I mean, it's, it's, it's really better translated the instruction but we call it the law because there's 613 laws that are in there. And what they would do, some of you know this, they, they would build um, teaching around that that would put additional rules around it so you didn't get too close to potentially breaking one of the laws and being unclean or something like this. But they built all of these layers onto these things. All of these things. And they feel really good about it because, because of that, God is very manageable. I can dot my, my I's, I can cross my T's, I know I'm good with God. And the great thing about that is you really don't have to interact with God much. You just have to interact with your tradition. You just have to interact with the religiosity that you've signed into. You can subscribe to and adhere to this system and know you're good with God without actually getting close to him. The point of the law was to cause you to reflect and think. They don't have to reflect and think. They've put all kinds of standards and rules around it so they don't have to. Think about this with like um, an important relationship in your life. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a, a close friend. But if I wanted to know if I was being, if I was close and present in the home, I could set up a rule that says, that would allow me to measure that, that says, if I'm home four nights a week for dinner, I am present in the home. And I can look at that and I can measure that. And when my, when my wife goes, hey, we haven't really talked in a while. We haven't really like been close and like had a good conversation or anything like this. I go, oh, 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 we're good. We're good. And you wanna know how I know we're good? Four nights a week, I was home. I was present. I've met the standard, therefore we're good even if I'm absent every other part of the relationship. I've adhered to the rules, and therefore we are good in our relationship. Do you see the problem with that? Do you see the problem with that? It doesn't, it doesn't feel relationally good. It, does, it doesn't feel close. There's, there's no intimacy there. It's just a bunch of rules dictating what it is you do or do not do. It's no good. They've got this system. They've managed God. So how's that going? If that's the way that we naturally approach God, we, we look for means to manage him. What's the problem with that approach? So now on to my second heading, the problem with that approach. 
They're trying to call the disciples out because they didn't wash their hands. But the law only required that priests wash their hands. It used the term cleansing. They interpreted it as washing one's hands. And that they cleansed themselves prior to entering the temple. As you can see how extreme this has gone. You have a rule that says for a certain group of people, Levitical priests, they must cleanse themselves before going into the temple. And now these guys are washing the insides of pots and their dining couches. And you gotta wash when you come back from the market. I mean, they do sound like the county health department. I mean, they've, they've nailed everything for everyone. And they've put all this additional burden on them. Did God ask for that burden? Is that how he asked to be approached? No, not at all. But they've added all this extra stuff on there. The Pharisees, through their tradition of elders, run with all of these rules and they put all of these extra things on there. You'll note that when they call Jesus out here, they don't call him out for missing the law. They call him for missing out the tradition of the elders. You're threatening our system, buddy. You're threatening our system. And that's how I know I'm good with God, is my system. And now you're threatening my system. That's what they're calling him out on. They're making up their own rules, which begs, why would you do this? Um, some of you are parents or, or teachers or both. And so you work with little people. And you make rules for them, right? How to live life and how to conduct themselves in the classroom or in your living room. Have they ever come back to make more? Have they ever come back to make more? This, this, seems, this seems like a weird approach, but you'll notice that the kids aren't trying to manage you. These guys are trying to manage God. That's, what, that's, that's why they've added these on. But whoever hears a rule, like whoever sees a speed limit and says, I can't go over 60, not only will I not go over 60, I will remain in the right lane all the time. And I'll keep my cruise control locked on all the time. It's the rule. It's the law. No one does this. No one does this. They go 10 over. <laughs> Alex and I were talking about this earlier this week. And he, he said this when we were chatting. And I was like, I'm going to write that one down. He said, legalism is man's pithy attempt at the holiness of God. Legalism is man's pithy attempt at the holiness of God. I, I think he's got that exactly right. The problem with the approach that the Pharisees were on is that they were attempting to mark themselves holy by their own action. Rather than using the law as it was intended to do, which, just, which was to show you that you couldn't do it on your own, that you couldn't figure it out on your own. But in doing it, they created all of this undue burden, all this burden that God never intended you to have. And I want you to think about how that impacted their relationship and their intimacy with God because it was so rule-based. Folks, we were, we were intended to find rest in God, not burden. I, I, I want you to think about your Christian experience with discipleship. This is where we can really reflect as a church, right? And, and, and as individuals, how's that felt so far? 
And, and I know we, we come from different faith backgrounds. This is a non-denominational church, so you could be a whole lot of anybody here. Well, to a degree. So you have different faith backgrounds. You have different experiences with the church. How many of you does it feel more like a burden than rest, if you're being honest with yourself? What has your discipleship looked like so far? More rest or more burden? Look at how Matthew records Jesus' description of discipleship. This is in Matthew 11. See if this squares with your experience. He says, take my yoke. Um, and yoke was a rabbinic term for a manner of living. Take my manner of living. Take my lifestyle upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke, or my lifestyle, my way of being, is easy, and my burden is light. And get a bit more context um, from the Jewish Mishnah, which is actually written after Jesus, but at least gives us some idea of, of what a first century Jew might have thought about that term yoke. This is used in this context here. It says, anyone who accepts upon himself the yoke of the Torah, removes from himself the yoke of the way of the world. But one who casts off the yoke of the Torah accepts upon himself the yoke of the way of the world. Have you ever thought of your, of your Christian discipleship or your interaction with the law as, oh, I'm coming into a place of rest? I'm coming to a place of calm? Or does it feel more like burden? I'll be perfectly honest with you much more of my Christian discipleship and my own experience with it has felt like burden, not rest, not at all. The, the image of discipleship that is presented to the American church, I think is highly flawed, highly flawed, both in what it looks for in its fruit, but also just its manner of doing things. It seems more like chores sometimes than anything else. The heart is removed from it. Are you reading the right books? Are you listening to the right podcasts? Which preacher did you listen to on your commute this week? How often are you in the Word? What does your prayer life look like? Is it deep? Are you in the right small group? How consistently are you here on Sundays? None of those are bad things. In fact, the preaching you'll get on podcasts is way better than the preaching you'll get this morning. But, but the... None of those are bad things, but when we drill them in and make it more lab laborious, make it more like chore than rest, how many of you approach the Word of God and say, I want to come this morning and find rest? I'm tired. I'm beat from my week. My relationship's not going the way I want it to. I'm struggling over here with something else. I want to come to prayer to find rest this morning. I want to spend time in the Word with God because that is the one thing I need in the middle of, of this rough week. Or are you coming to it because it's Tuesday, and every Tuesday you're in the Word. I must get the time in the Word. I must check this box. I want you to think about how you approach it. And I also want you to think about how God has offered it to you. He intended for you to come this morning to, to sit amongst the body to find rest, to find comfort amongst other believers, not because you had to be here. 
not because you had to be here. And honestly, I mean, the Seahawks play at one, so you're good this week. But, or, or you're, you didn't have to worry about comparing, like, do I want to go to brunch or watch the Hawks or something else on Sunday morning? Or do I have to go to church? I think what he's saying to you is like, man, after the week you've had, come find rest here. Detach from the way of the world for a minute. It's so tempting to fall into those patterns. Come here and find rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I would invite you, by way of application to this text, to seek a lightweight Christianity that is restful for your soul, that allows you to relationally connect with God, and that if you're doing something out of duty, stop, or get help with someone who can help you find rest in that activity. If you look into the history of the church, the spiritual disciplines that we have recorded, you know, like silence and solitude, it's not necessarily recorded in scripture. The point of those disciplines is they were finding them working for the early church. So they recorded them. So oh, you, should, you should do this. There's a discipline of this. There's a discipline of this. You should go over here. We find this very restful. We find this good to feel the presence of God in your life. Just go, go do this. Go get some time. Find rest. They were never intended to be hard on you. Something you had to get done in the midst of an otherwise busy life. To go back to your tight relationship, whether that was a marriage or anything else, if you think of the activities that you do in your marriage and they come off as laborious and a burden, you're probably doing it wrong. And it's probably symptomatic of something deeper about how you look at the relationship. And I'll just say as your pastor, um, would you reach out and email me or something if you're struggling to connect with God, if you're tired, if it feels more like work than anything else, I would love to do it with you. I would love for you to find rest in him, not burden, not extra labor, but rest. Lots of people in this church that would love to walk through your faith walk with you and be alongside you so that you can find that rest as you were intended to find. I will say that we have to recognize as a church that we should look at what we're doing and we should reevaluate all the time of whether things are working or not. You'll notice our small group model has shifted twice in the last two years. That's why because we looked at what it was two years ago and we said we have, I think, one really healthy group and we have a bunch that are dwindling and it seems more like work and it seems more burdensome than anything else. I don't think we would have used those, that language, that vocabulary, but that's what we were getting at. So we started kind of rethinking it through and then this year we came back and we said, hey, you know, some of the changes that we've made were good uh, but we should tweak that again. We should refine that better than it, than it has been because we realized that it was way easier to connect in this model, but maybe people weren't getting the time in the spiritual disciplines. They weren't growing 
from a spiritual formation aspect in the way that we were hoping that they might through that. So let's redo it. Let's just, let's just draw a pretty graphic and, and rethink how we approach this. But we should always be thinking about that as a church. And I would encourage you too, as one of your pastors, um, if you find something that we do and you just go, that's not life-giving, that feels more laborious to me than anything else, do you let us know and give us that feedback? We want to think through those things. We want you to find rest. We want you to find rest. Verse 6, And he said to them, this is Jesus, Well did I say a prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. I love Jesus. Jesus shoots, of course I love Jesus, but Jesus shoots real straight here. I love the term that he uses. He calls them hypocrites. And we have hypocrite, I mean, we, that's, that's a common English word. It comes from the Greek, right? Um, common English words. You know what a hypocrite is, right? But it had more meaning in their context, I think. And you've got to know a bit of the history of the word and a little bit of the root of the word. Does anybody know what a, what a, what a hypocrite was in Greek culture? A couple of you. They were actors. Yeah, it's the term that you use for a Greek actor. Very good, Sam. Way to go. Um, it's a t it was an acting term. It came from the theater. And so um, it, was, um, it was for people that would put on masks and be someone different than who they actually are. Oh, yeah, well, that's an actor. That makes total sense. Um, but the other thing to think about when you think of a hypocrite or you think of an actor is an actor doesn't just act on his own. He needs an audience. He needs an audience. He needs someone to observe this shift that he's making. These guys, the Pharisees, had convinced themselves and everyone else around them that they were nailing it, that they were meeting and exceeding the standards of God. They were nailing this. But Jesus saw right through it. Not only does he call them hypocrites, he quotes Isaiah. He is not fooled here. He quotes Isaiah, listen to his assessment. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They fooled everyone around here to think that they are somehow close to God, but they're full of it. They're not close to me. They, they, you leave the commandment of God and you hold your own traditions. You've built this system. You've built this religious system and you're, you're, you're demanding that everyone meets that system at the negation of what I've actually asked you to do, of the actual means to approach God that I've set up for you. They weren't concerned about their relationship with God. They were concerned about the appearance of their relationship with God. Because remember, a hypocrite is concerned about his audience too, first and foremost. What did people think? They put weight on the bar because they were crappy leaders. They were crappy religious leaders who did not understand how God actually wanted to be approached. And rather than shepherding people towards God and towards his gentleness, the hypocrites deceived people 
and they led them away to their own teaching. Listen to how Matthew records this. He says, and Jesus went to all the cities. He's, he's summarizing Jesus' ministry here. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked at all the people in the city that have been living under a rather oppressive religious system, an oppressive religious government, and they were helpless towards it because they didn't build the system. And they were harassed and burdened by the system because they didn't build the system and they weren't welcome in it. They were like sheep without a shepherd because these religious leaders didn't seek to care for and love the sheep as Jesus intended. They came to burden the sheep and to lead them into their own system so that they would look good. What a failed leadership model. What a failed leadership model. May that never be true of us. Sorry. The hearts of the Pharisees were bent towards preserving a false reputation that they had it together rather than towards their love of God and what he cared about. All right. I'm going to get into Corbin. If you know what Corbin is, I'm going to be super impressed. Sam. <laughs> this is always the one in seminary that blew everybody's hook. Whoa, did not see that coming. I just read past this one. Um, but Jesus... I, I do think Jesus genuinely cares about the Pharisees. He's not just beating these guys up. He is trying to help them see. He is right to be frustrated with them, but he is trying to help them see. So he's going to give them a case study that might help them better get an image of what it is that they're actually doing. And he's going to go into this thing about honoring your parents. Awesome. Uh, here we go. This is, this is what we have. Verse 9. And I promise we're going to move quickly. Don't worry. Don't get, don't get afraid. I will not go super long today. And he said this to them. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. Um, since Sam didn't know what Corbin was, it's okay. I'm sorry. Um, I, again, I didn't either. <laughs> this is okay. Corbin um, was this practice of pledging money and setting. Corbin in the Hebrew means to be set aside. That's why parents, like the Bowers, <laughs> named their son Corbin. That's a perfectly acceptable name. And there's also a university in Salem, Oregon, uh, named Corbin. It's not a bad thing. If this was just about like religious hypocrisy, you wouldn't name your school or your son that. Okay, it's a fine term. Just wanted to give you that caveat. But what they would do is mom and dad grow old. And this is pre-FDR, pre-New Deal, and therefore pre-Social Security. Um, and so if you get to your old age, 
hopefully you took care of your kids and hopefully that relationship was all right because your offspring was your retirement system. That was your means of support when you could no longer work. They, they would take care of you. Mom and dad would move back in. Some of you have experienced the dream that that is. Um, that might be. But this, this was how it was handled, right? So mom and dad would come to you and go, hey, you know, we could use a few bucks, shekels. We could use a few shekels. And, and you go, well, oy vey, I, 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 I've already promised it in Corbin. I've already pledged it to the temple for God's use. It has been Corbin set aside for divine use. I, I, I would help you if I could, but I can't because I've already made this pledge. And so what these folks would do, what these kids would do, kids, they were people my age, they, they, would, they would make sure that they had made a pledge to the temple before their parents got too old and needed to ask about what they were doing with their money. And because everything was pledged out, couldn't help your parents. Sorry, mom, dad, that's, you know, they'd still hold on to the money because it's just a pledge. But I, I can't do anything with that. I've already, you know, promised the local rabbi that, you know, that temple's going to get a new interior wall, um, that I'm taking care of this. And then mom and dad would die, which inevitably happens. Mom and dad would die. And for 30 shekels, if you were a woman, or 50 shekels if you were a man, you could go release that pledge. Mom and dad die, they're dead and buried and in the ground, hey, time to go release that pledge. And for a small percentage of what you had promised to the temple, you get that money right back. Mom and dad are dead and you still got what you need. You still got all your savings. And Jesus is saying, how does that square for you with the whole, I don't know, honor your mother and father bit? How'd that go? Did you adhere to the law? Uh, I guess from the letter of the law standpoint, sure. You followed exactly what your religious leaders told you to do. You're within the system. They've set all of this up so that you can do this kind of thing. How'd that go with honoring your father and or your mother, your father, your mother and father? How'd that go? See. They figured out ways to adhere to the rules and totally miss the heart of the rules. God was looking out for all of his people, even in their old age. He was, he was causing you to think about your relationship with your parents. It actually says a lot about your relationship with God often. So he wanted you to think about that. But they're not looking to honor their parents. They're deceiving their parents. And Jesus is calling these guys out on Corbin because these are the guys that set it up. He's going, see, how serious are you really about the law? How serious are you really? It's a nice case study, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, when it came to illustrations, just threaded that needle just right. That's where their heart actually was, regardless of what it looked like to their audience, regardless of what it looked like on paper. So we've seen how we naturally approach God. We, we build systems to manage God, and we often, we, we add unnecessary burdens, right? And now we've seen the problem with that approach. 
namely that our heart remains distant from God. And the weight on the bar is overwhelming. It burdens other people around us, all just to deceive anyway. Sounds pretty hopeless. But somewhat buried in the next section is actually the answer, the hope that'll come out of this. And it comes from a discussion of bacon. Verse 14, all unclean foods. And he called the people to him again and said, hear me, all of you, and understand that there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. They do this a lot. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is then expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defiles a person. Oh. See, the accusation against Jesus was that he was getting rid of the law. They didn't care. They didn't care. And the, you know, as far as the Pharisees are concerned, the fish rules and certain bird rules and definitely the pork rule are still making you unclean. And yet Jesus is coming along and saying, no, 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 no. Now what, what defiles you, what really makes you unclean in the sense that I mean it, what makes you unclean in your approach to God is what is coming from within your heart, what comes from within you out not the other way. See, that, that was the point of the law, is it was supposed to help you see that. To understand the clean, unclean, you have to look at its function. It's all about how you approach God. It's all about whether you can be in his presence. But there's a shift that happens here. Why could Jesus then flatly dismiss something that is clearly written in the Torah, that's clearly in Leviticus, that you cannot do the pork. No pork. Why can he go against that? Because no longer do I need to be ceremonially pure and clean to approach God in the temple because God has come to us. It's a divinity claim. This is a divinity claim. He's playing with them a bit. He's trying to help them see. What you've been trying to do this entire time is figure out whether, you can, whether you're in that binary system, clean or unclean, and can approach God. And you've been working in this system to try to declare yourself clean and good with God, and it's not going very well. You're burdening people. You're not good shepherds. This sucks for everyone. And you're still not good with God no matter what the people around you think. Your heart is far from me. Your lips do service here, 
but you're much more concerned about the commandments of men than you ever were about the purpose of the law. You've missed it. The purpose of the law, the purpose of the Old Testament, the purpose of all of the case study that we have of Israel trying to walk through from the moment they get the law and all that's written down and they're trying to walk through and it's not going well. The purpose of the Old Testament, other than to like set, it's kind of like sets up the punchline. Um, it's setting everything up, but it's helping you understand that even if you have all of the means by which, all of the understanding by which that you could be good with God, that you never will actually be good with God on your own power. It's a temporary system that's set up. That's why they have Yom Kippur, right? Once a year, we can somehow become good with God. And then tomorrow we're going to need it again. And we'll wait another 364 days until we get there, right? We'll wait another year. Then we'll be good, good with God again. But, but God's looking down and he's saying, no, you're going to need something better than that. You're going to need a better shepherd who comes to show people God's rest, who comes to release the burden of religious expression. And say, if you feel burdened or overwhelmed from this, come into my rest. Come into my rest. And what is the impression that you have of Jesus through all of Mark so far? He's super gentle. He's super welcoming. He's super willing to bring people in. He's also super honest with people. See, Jesus is the anti-hypocrite. Jesus is the anti-hypocrite. Because before Jesus, we can be fully known. There's no mask there. There's no mask left. He encourages you to walk in the light as he is in the light, right? Because you don't have to put on a performance of who you are. You don't have to try to convince others that you are somehow got it nailed and got everything figured out. Because with Jesus, he calls us into a life of response of him having everything figured out. Because he's offered himself as a substitute. Because he, he comes and he lives life with us. He, he goes through the experience of needing rest. He goes through the experience of showing us the, the healing nature of spiritual disciplines showing us what it is to connect with the Father in a healthy way and to find actual intimacy with his Father. And he does it without sin so that the sacrifice that was needed in the temple so that we could approach God on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, that he would act as his sacrifice so that God could dwell within us. It's really beautiful if you think about how well Jesus fulfills the law and fulfills the thread of the Old Testament. It's beautiful. At the heart of the gospel is not us going up to God, but him coming down to us and bringing us back to the garden where we can commune and be with God forever. So in that, we get a new heart and a clean record. A new heart 
not that's far, not that is removed and far from God, but is brought back in. Look at look at what we you know where I'm going. As soon as I said clean heart, clean record here. Yeah, it's going to Ezekiel. Yes, I am. It says this. It says I will vindicate the holiness of my name. See, these guys gave God a bad reputation. Who would ever want to be with those guys? They have no fun. They lay on restrictions on everything. That's not life-giving. Why would I want to be one of these guys? I will vindicate the holiness of my name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Remember, the people were to be an example. If, if, if only Israel could could live according to the law, they would be a blessing amongst the nations. Everyone would want to know something of God if only they modeled what he wanted them to model. When through you I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take from you, or I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Look at the language of holiness and now cleanliness as he addresses the heart. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. I'll wash you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Or all your uncleannesses. And from your idols I'll cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. His solution for how to approach God was that he would approach you. That's what he's saying there. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That language is meant to drive you back to the Garden of Eden. That is meant to drive you back because what is true in the Garden of Eden is that God's chosen people are sitting under God's rule and loving leadership and they're thriving and flourishing. They have peace. And what he's saying is that you've not been able to get back there on your own, but that's where I'm bringing you back. And you'll notice that in Revelation, it's, it's a direct parallel to the garden. The first two chapters of the Bible and the final two chapters of the Bible. What do you have there? It's God's people under God's rule, in God's land, living in peace. That's where he wants you to get. That's what he's called to bring you back into. Because that's the best possible scenario for all of us. And so because of that, each week we pause. And if I'm being honest with you, even as someone who preaches on a semi-regular basis, I actually think this is the climax of the service. The Anglicans would be thrilled with that statement. Uh, I think this is the climax of the service. When we come and we take the broken body of Christ and we dip it in the wine or the juice to represent his shed blood for us because this is the means by which we can approach him. This is the means by which he can be with us. The means by which an unholy, unclean people otherwise could be in the loving presence of God. The means of returning to the garden is through the shed blood and the broken body. 
that, that invites you back in, the perfect sacrifice that would allow you to approach and dwell with God forever.